This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, whom was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Well, we're not only taking a little bit of a break from the mystery box, but also from our study in the book of Acts, as we are now... On a journey with Jesus um, towards the cross as we walk with him in the final days of his life, as we contemplate and reflect on what that means to us. I I think it's good now that we we turn to scripture that prepares us uh, for our Easter celebration. So the next several weeks leading up to Easter, um, we won't be in the book of Acts, but be looking uh, in the Gospels as we prepare ourselves for Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for uh, an example, a model of extravagant faith that we've read this morning. Uh, We pray that as we journey with you to the cross, uh, with your son Jesus, uh, that we might be reminded of uh, the devotion and the love that we can express towards him. Lord, your love compels us to do nothing less. May we be challenged to consider how that love, how that expression, how that devotion might be extravagant. And in doing so, glorify you. Lord, bless us now as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I read a story recently about a man who purchased a plot of land. 
And on that plot of land was a house and a barn and, and several outbuildings. Now he purchased the land and went to renovate the house and he got to the barn and it was just filled full of junk. And as he was going through all of the junk, sort of like American pickers, right? He, he found a violin case and he opened it up and inside the violin case was what appeared to be a very old violin. As he examined the violin, he saw on it the name Stradivarius. And he thought to himself, oh my, look what I just found. If indeed this is a Stradivarius, a very rare, rare instrument, then I'll have made all the money I spent on the property and then some. And so he was thinking that he had struck it rich. And so he took the Stradivarius to a store to be uh, examined and, and the owner looked at it and said, well, I'm not quite sure. We need something with a little bit more expertise to take a look at this. And sure enough, they called in the, the experts and it was uh, taken and looked at and, and the day of the appraisal came and the man was anxious to hear about the value of his Stradivarius only to find out that it wasn't a true Stradivarius at all. Uh, it was a rather inexpensive knockoff that had been manufactured at some time in the 1900s. It was probably worth five or $600. It only had the name Stradivarius stamped on the instrument. And uh, in his disappointment, in his dismay, the appraiser looked at him and said these words. He said, just because something bears a label doesn't mean it's real. Just because something bears a label, it doesn't mean it's real. In our passage this morning, we see examples of real devotion, of extravagant faith, of a commitment to glorify God in, in, in such a way that we have to, to stand back and, and catch our breath and say, wow, this is beautiful. In contrast to an expression that appears to be real, that's not quite real at all. We see both in this chapter. As we come to chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, uh, we, we see the struggle between light and darkness described in John 1, verses 1 through 18, reaching a fevered pitch. Now you remember John starts his Gospel by, by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And it talks about the light that comes to dwell among us, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And as we move from the first chapter of John through the Gospel here to chapter 12, we, we see this contrast between light, Jesus, who's the light of life, the light of men, and spiritual darkness. And, and we see it now coming to a head as as Jesus is preparing uh, 
to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and we see this here in this passage that the light is shining and the darkness is trying to extinguish it. It's really important as you look here in this first 11 verses of, of chapter 12 that you look back into chapter 11 beginning in verse 45 where you see a plot to kill Jesus now is developing. Again, darkness coming against the light. And what's happening here is the religious leaders have gathered uh, word that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead has spread. People are coming from everywhere to, to see Jesus. His popularity, ostensibly at least, is, is, is gaining. And the religious leaders are feeling threatened. And they're wondering, what are we going to do with him? And in verse 48... They say, if we let him go on like this, everything we, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And so they were interested in maintaining the status quo for fear that the Roman authorities would come. Then Caiaphas says these words in verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Isn't that interesting? How ironic. In other words, what he was saying, it's better that we do away with Jesus for the sake of the nation. That way we appease Rome. There's no problems. We maintain the status quo. But what he didn't realize is he's really speaking prophetically. That one man would die for the nation. And for all who by faith would, would come then and later to Jesus. And so we, we see this tension developing in the story. And chapter 12 begins with a feast, with a, with a dinner being held in the honor of Jesus. We see the, the usual people there, Martha and Mary, Lazarus. It's a celebration for what he had done. And that's the context of our, of our passage today. The passage is about devotion. And we're going to see devotion expressed by, by Mary, uh, by Jesus himself, by Lazarus. All of them here, there's, there's an expression of devotion of faith, of, of real faith. Mary, of course, uh, with her action, gives a gift. And, and her action is worthy of our emulation. She gives a very extravagant gift. We see that she has a, a pound of pure nard. Now, if you're not familiar with that, uh, nard was something that was produced in the, in the north of India. And it would come west by way of caravan. Uh, it was made from gladiolas. Okay? And it was very, very expensive. It had a medicinal use uh, in medicinal recipes for illnesses. Uh, it was used in aromatic wine, even as a, as a breath mint or a breath scent. It was also uh, a very, very valued perfume. It was very expensive. Um, it was literally a year's wages. If you were a working person, uh, it was worth a year's wages, the amount uh, that she had. And so what does she do? While Jesus is reclining at this banquet, she comes and she anoints him. 
with this nard, with, with pure nard. Now, some people would take nard and they'd dilute it with water. Okay? But she doesn't do that. She takes it with all of its value, with all of its expense, and she lavishly anoints Jesus with this nard. And in doing so, it's very interesting. It anticipates the foot washing found in uh, John 13. Do you remember that? Where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples? And of course, in John 13, 14, he says to his disciples, as, as you've seen me do, so you should do to one another. And in doing so here, uh, we see that Mary's gift anticipates the foot washing in John 13. And that she is the only one who does what Jesus asks in John 13 before he even asks it. She gets it. She understands what Jesus was about and what Jesus was, was asking his followers to do. It's also interesting that Mary acts with, a, with an astounding, extravagant abandonment as she figuratively prepares Jesus for his burial. Just as uh, the high priest Caiaphas said, it, it's only good that one man should die for the whole nation, not understanding really what he was saying. That that was what was going to happen in a way that he couldn't understand it. In the same way, we see Mary anointing Jesus with this, this nard, this perfume, that could be used in a body in, in preparation for burial while he's still alive and and. And without even knowing it figuratively, she is doing for Jesus and she is, she is letting everyone know that He is being prepared for His death. For soon, He's going to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and that week He'll journey to the cross. And so, it really foreshadows uh, His death and His burial. It evokes an image of an embalmed body. She accepts that Jesus is going to die and she herself dies to self to show it. She holds nothing back. Now you have to understand, as she is anointing him from head to foot, as she is pouring this, this, this expensive perfume, as she is being extravagant and lavishing this upon him, she gets to his feet She's wearing her hair down, which really is a taboo in this culture. A woman's never to let her hair down except in an intimate situation or setting with her husband. It's completely inappropriate. And yet in this extravagant expression of devotion, she, she has her hair down and, and, and she, she really challenges the, the cultural conventions of the day by doing so. But it doesn't matter. She takes this risk. In a sense, she's dying to herself because of the ramifications of her act and, and she wipes his feet with her hair. What a, what a powerful act and expression of, of devotion to Jesus. She holds nothing back for herself. In Mark's Gospel, it says that she actually breaks the bottle. She pours it all out. There's nothing left. She lavishes it entirely upon Jesus. She teaches us that no gift is too precious that shows gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross. But this is something, the next thing is something that, that really struck me, and perhaps it will you. I, I never thought of this before, but this perfume 
was so powerful as she she really anointed him and just poured it out all over him. The fragrance, just the aromatic fragrance that just filled the room, right? But that same fragrance would have been on Jesus' body and on his garments throughout the coming week. Literally, Mary's gift remained as the last beautiful fragrance that Jesus smelled as he went to the cross and he suffered the agony of crucifixion. And in that way, it becomes the sweet smell of success. Through all the events, through everything that happens during the Passover week, culminating in His crucifixion, that smell of that pure nard that Mary anointed Jesus with figuratively embalming Him, foreshadowing His own death and burial, that scent, that sweet scent, because it was a sweet, sweet scent, would have been on His body and His clothing. during those horrific events at the end of that Passover week. It's amazing. What a gift that she gave him, but what a gift that he gave to her and all of us. Lazarus, Mary, and Jesus in this story each serve as models of devotion which glorifies God. Obviously Mary, but then Jesus too. Uh, Judas, he sees what's happening and he makes a comment. Uh, Couldn't this be better spent on the poor? After all, this represents one year's wages. Essentially, what he's saying is you're wasting this on this extravagant act of devotion upon Jesus. And Jesus makes a statement which is often misunderstood. He says, well, the poor will always be with us, but not so with me. She could have saved it for my burial. Again, figuratively, that's what she was doing, preparing him for his death. And what Jesus is saying here is is that we don't neglect the poor because they'll always be with us. But he was making a point that the poor are there, but I'm not going to be for much longer. And he wanted to, to emphasize the fact that he was going to his death. That's what that is about. But you'll notice that the passage points out that Judas was a bit of a hypocrite. Not only did he um, point the finger at Mary and say, you know, you're being too extravagant. Look at all this money this costs. This could have been better spent on something else, meaning the poor. But it, it gives us an insight to Judas in that it, 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 it says here that literally as the treasurer, right, of the followers of this rabbi Jesus, he was holding money back for himself. And so he would he would look and be critical of what Mary was doing all the while he himself was doing something that was very dishonest. And so we see Lazarus. People are coming to see him because that he had been raised from the dead. And we read in the passage that the, the religious leaders are not only conspiring to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus as well. Because if we can get rid of the man that Jesus raised from the dead, then we'll end the problem. And if we get rid of the one who raised him from the dead, we'll end the problem. So quite literally, by hosting Jesus with Martha and Mary in this home, he's putting his life on the line. 
He's saying, hey, we're going to celebrate what Jesus did. And so again, he's holding nothing back. That's an act of devotion. That is an act of extravagant faith. He's willing to die to self in order that Jesus might be celebrated. And of course, we've talked about Mary. And there's Jesus himself, fully aware of where he's going. Fully aware of what the days of the, of the coming week will bring. Abby taught us this morning with her soccer ball that our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We see here in the lives of the people, Lazarus, Mary, Jesus, Martha, we see in their lives models of devotion which glorifies God. And those models are for us today. Let's consider these four points. When we glorify, we glorify God when first, we obey Him even when it is difficult. Every person in this story that demonstrated devotion, that, that expressed an extravagant act of faith, did so in a time that was very difficult. Did so in a way that they were putting themselves at risk. It was a costly expression of faith. Jesus says in John 12, 27 through 28, these words. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all that obey him. We glorify God when we obey him, even when it's difficult. Second, we glorify God when we live willing to give our lives away. We glorify God when we live willing to give our lives away. In John 15, 12 through 13, Jesus says, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. A willingness to give our lives away. 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's interesting. Uh, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Right? Speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus. 1 John right, 3.16 3.16 says that that we demonstrate love when we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so we glorify God when we live willing to give our lives away. Third, we glorify God when we live to please Him instead of ourselves and people. John fifteen eight says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And I love what Paul writes in Galatians 1.10. 
Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And it's very clear in our story here that the those that are celebrating Jesus, those that are hosting this dinner, and even Jesus himself, are not living to please others or even themselves. But each is making a sacrifice to please God. And then finally, we glorify God when we serve Jesus by following His example. You know, Jesus did everything intentionally. There wasn't anything that He he did that He didn't do to model for His disciples. And we see that in, in this passage. We, we see it in His life. And this is for us. That as His disciples, as His followers, that we might follow His model. In John twelve twenty six, just a few verses to come in this chapter. Jesus says, Whoever serves Me must follow Me. And where I am, My servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves Me. Isn't that interesting? That as we in our life seek to, to glorify God, that in doing so, we receive honor from Him. John thirteen fourteen and 15. I already alluded to this. The fact that Mary would do this before Jesus even taught it or requested it. But He really had lived it. And she caught that. Now that I, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus asks us to live in the way that He lived. He asks us to relate to one another in the same way that He related to His followers. Malcolm Mugridge wrote an article called The Beauty of Mother Teresa. I'd like to read it to you. Doing something beautiful for God is, for Mother Teresa, what life is about. He wrote this while she was still living. Everything in that it is for God becomes beautiful, whatever it may be. Mother Teresa and the missionaries of charity provide a living witness to the power and truth of what Jesus came to proclaim. His light shines in them. When I think of them in Calcutta, as I often do, it is not the bare house in the dark slum that is conjured up in my mind, but a light shining and a joy abounding. I see them diligently and cheerfully constructing something beautiful for God out of human misery and affliction that lies around them. One of their leper settlements is near a slaughterhouse whose stench in the ordinary way might easily make you wretch. There with Mother Teresa, he writes, I scarcely noticed it. Another fragrance had swallowed it up. A beautiful fragrance. The sweet smell of success. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Second Corinthians chapter two. 
verse 14. As we prepare for communion this morning, I want to close with this passage. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And the imagery here he uses is very powerful. It has a, a really powerful application for you and me. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Let me give you the imagery. In Rome a conquering general or the emperor coming back from a great victory would have a wonderful procession through the streets. Uh, It was extravagant. And there would be those that would go ahead of the procession. And often they were the captives. They were the vanquished. They were the ones that would be brought back as a symbol of conquest. And they would be in chains, literally leading the procession a symbol of the great uh, uh, conquering work of the emperor, of the general. And then behind them would come this wonderful, uh, just celebratory parade, culminating with, with the emperor or the general. And there would be a person who would, uh, or persons who would have incense, and they would also be in the procession. And there would be a smell, a fragrance, an aroma. And, and that aroma... Uh, would be uh, an aroma of, of victory. It would be a reminder that the emperor or the general had, had successfully conquered uh, a foreign country or a foreign people or had won in battle. And sometimes there would be flowers that would be thrown out, often frequently. And as the flowers would be thrown out, the horses uh, and the captive that led the procession would would step on them and break them and crush them into the ground. And again, that would create an aroma. You see? And what what Paul is saying here is we give thanks to God who leads us as captives. Do you see the imagery? In Christ's triumphal procession. And uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That quite literally our lives in the procession of Christ are an aroma that lead others to the knowledge of Him everywhere. It is the, the sweet smell of success that we would die to ourselves and live for something much greater. That Christ would be made known to all people. That we as a family on mission together would be at the head of Christ's triumphal procession. That our lives would be a sacrifice, a sweet aroma, announcing to everyone that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. For we are to God, he writes, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death to the other, an aroma that brings life. This morning, as we focus on the events leading up to the Passover, to the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection of Christ, 
Our challenge is to live an extravagant faith. That we would not merely have the name Christian stamped on us, but our lives would be a testimony that it's real. In our devotion, in our extravagance, in our worship of our Lord, that we would be among those who would bear the sweet smell of success. The smell of death, but death that brings life. And in that life that we enjoy, that we might proclaim to all people in all places the rule and reign of God through our risen, victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.